Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. One of the challenges with transformation, I mean, first of all, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And that is true of any, just experience design, actually. You do what you like to make it, but experience is both you and that person. You can do what you can do for the, you know, the structured experience. You can do what you, you can, but it's still the person. It's very, you know, from an economic point of view, it's very different selling stuff. Here's the stuff. Do you like it? It's up to you. But with experience, you've got it's that person it is very important part of it. And that's what makes it, you know, it's co-created every experience. Are you interested in adding multi-day to your day tour business? Are you looking to understand growth and scale strategies in the multi-day world? Looking to finally crack the technology stack you need to organize, automate and grow your business? Then join Tourpreneur in Seville, Spain for Tourpreneur Connect, sponsored by WeTravel, November 27th to 30th, 2023, for an event unlike any other in our industry. Open to strictly 100 operators. Pete, Mitch, Chris, and other industry experts will guide you through the do's, don'ts, twists, and turns of running a multi-day tour business. Not only that, Tourpreneur are giving back as we will be bringing in local suppliers and businesses to help us run the event. We're also opening up the event to a number of locally based tour operators who can attend for free. So join Tourpreneur in Seville for Connect, November 27th to 30th, 2023, and join us for an unforgettable experience of learning and connection in one of Europe's most unforgettable cities. Visit tourpreneur.com slash connect for more info. Another podcast on the Tourpreneur Community uh, series, and today I'm super excited to welcome James Wallman. James Wallman is the CEO of the World Experience Organization, WEO. He's an experienced designer, a strategist, a keynote speaker, he's done a couple of TED Talks, he's an author of two best-selling books, and he is a bit of a futurist. He talks about immersive experiences and the experience economy, employee experiences and exponential marketing. He also advises the UK government on the experience economy, and his consultancy advises clients such as HBC, KFC, Kayak, From Our World, Marriott, Disneyland, Facebook. So he's consulting to blue chip clients on the experience economy. Those of you in the community who listened to the Joe Pine uh, podcast several months ago, that's what we're talking about today, the actual experience economy, but taking that into the designing and delivering of the actual experiences that can deliver on what Joe talks about in the experience economy. James, welcome to the Tourpreneur podcast. Peter, thank you for having me. Really happy to be here. Um, I have a huge passion for travel. My, I think it was my first job, I think it was my first proper job-ish out of university was working for a company called Crystal as a uh, a ski rep and then oh, I yeah, an crystal. Yeah. Uh, as a ski rep and then I went to uh, the Greek island actually no it's the Greek islands before I uh, anyway and I worked for Thompson and I was a travel journalist for many years um, so I have quite a thing for travel so really happy to be here um, obviously I love the experience stuff and I love that you had Joe on because Joe obviously is the, yeah. the original creator uh, the guy who yeah, came it- up with the experience economy he is the one we all refer to and keep referring to and keep going back and rereading the book just to make sure we're all on the same same lines. So the can you start, James, by just explaining what the World Experience Organization is? Just give us an overview of the WEO. Um, we basically what we do, and it is a classic example of a passion project. I'm a writer, and Joe uh, blurbed one of my books and said that I was the Malcolm Gladwell of the experience economy, if you know Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. Yeah, Black Swan. That was was nice. Um, And this has come out of me me, 10 years ago, I gave up my 
job as a editor of a trend forecasting publication to self-publish a book called Stuffocation, which I wanted to call The Experientialists. But the subtitle of the self-published book was Stuffocation, uh, why we've had enough of stuff and need experience more than ever. And here I am 10 years later and created this World Experience Organization, set it up. Actually, originally it came from advising the UK government that that's what they should do, create a global <laughs> organization to connect people across different sectors, because what they want to do is sell, sell UK PLC abroad. And I said, look, that's 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 a great idea. Let's help sell, um, you know, British experience companies and their work and services abroad. But the best way to do that is not just to say, wow, the Brits are great, because it turns out the Americans are pretty good at some things, too, and the Dutch and the Germans, etc. So I said, what we should do is create an organization for all these different experience sectors, connect them and grow the pie. And therefore, our piece of the pie will get bigger as well. So that was my take. And they... I don't know how much work you've done with governments, um, but um, they sat on it and I thought it needed to be done. I thought someone should do it. I've never created an organization before, um, but it needed to be done. No one was doing it. And I thought I might get off my butt and do it. So I brought together initially, uh, yeah, a sort of bag of sort of about 60 people from Shanghai to San Francisco, including Joe, a bunch of co-founders. And then we kind of launched and we opened for members in July 21. And you, of course, are one of our members. So thank you. Great to have someone who understands what AI means and what travel means uh, and how travel is changing. Um, we now have, I think it's 507 or 508 latest number of members around the world. Uh, not as big as you guys. We're in 37 countries. Uh, everyone from uh, Meow Wolf in immersive art to secret cinema to people like uh, Tom Marchant of Black Tomato um, and neuroscientists, design uh, specialists and psychologists, etc. And what we do is we get together to discuss how to make great experiences, how to think about, figure out, making experiences that make people feel something, maybe happier, maybe sad, maybe angry, but whatever, make people feel something and feel alive, but also experiences that are repeatable, profitable, scalable sustainable good for the planet good for society better experiences basically and without getting on my sort of soapbox too much my core belief and i think therefore the wxo's core belief is that just as materialism and the consumer revolution transformed standards standards of living in the 20th century i think that experientialism will transform quality of life in the 21st century and what we're trying to do is be a catalyst for that by connecting people in different sectors of the experience economy and different geographies in order to figure out how to make better experiences for everyone at all times cool so we referenced joe earlier as we started this podcast let's just go back to the experience economy uh, for those listening the experience economy is a concept joe pine and jim gilmore came up with it places everything that we do in life and in business and in commodities, products, services, experiences, or transformational experiences. Where do you think we are in the experience economy at the moment? Uh, is it still the same as Joe and Jim came up with? Is it transforming in any way? Is it still as relevant? Is it more relevant? Where are we in the experience economy at the moment? Great question. I think it's more relevant than ever. I guess I would say that because I run an organization called the World Experience Organization. So um, you can take that with a pinch of salt, I guess. But at the same time, um, so I, just to be really clear, I see the experience economy as the business side of this and experientialism being the people side. This is the change in our culture. I see the two happening in tandem with each other. I think that, you know, if you think when they first, you know, wrote the paper in 98 and wrote the book in 99, um, it, it's changed a lot and, and you know think about how technology is changing things and you can look at this i don't know what you think of this idea but one of the magical things that the consumer revolution did was it took the magic of the industrial revolutions the first and second industrial revolutions and it made it meaningful powerful and good for people because before then you know uh what kind of the the, the take on what happened particularly in the 1920s in the states was that well, let's take, let, yeah, it's a really good example. Let's take Henry Ford and his car versus GM and their cars. Okay, so Henry Ford said in about 19, 
1910, something like that. He said that the man who buys one of his cars, and it was men in those days, the man who buys one of his cars will never have to buy another car. And that is the statement of a very successful engineer who's won in the industrial economy. But just think about what that means for consumerism, because consumerism is built on being people buying more stuff and keep on buying more and more and more things, right? So that doesn't work. And what GM did was in the early 1920s, about 22, 23, was introduced changing colors, changing designs with the seasons, okay? Because what that would mean is it made the, 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 current, the old stuff look old and therefore people would, would want to buy the new thing. And so we got, had to get create this kind of cycle of change. And so materialism as a value system and the practice of consumerism was a way to um, make sense of the magical discoveries of the Industrial Revolution from 1750 up to that time. And what's going on at the moment with the fourth Industrial Revolution you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, you know, the rise of robots and kind of cobots, all this kind of stuff, um, blockchain, all these things which are changing the world is that if we let the engineers just make their stuff, what does that mean for people? And I think one of the reasons why we need the liberal arts and the psychologists and the people that care about people and whether you call somebody a traveler, a guest, uh, a client, a customer, an employee, a participant, a player, a patient, an audience, they're all people. So does thinking about their psychology and the way that they live each moment is really essential. And that doesn't come from the fourth industrial revolution, but it does come from people who care about experience design. And so therefore, I think it's really important now for us to have experiences and to think about experiences as people work in this industry, think about how we design experiences using that stuff. So it's really important because of the fourth industrial revolution, but it's also really important because, well, my first book was called Stuffocation. There are fundamental problems with the success of material consumer culture. And those are, of course, the two huge, I guess, elephants in every room, uh, the problems with the environment and the problem with well-being. And uh, we've become atomized in our, in our society. We think happiness exists in things, not in experiences. Of course, probably everyone listening to this podcast thinks exactly the opposite. But there is a, you know, a dominant culture that's come as a as bequeathed to us because of our ancestors in the 20th century that says stuff is good. Buy more shoes, it will make you happy. Buy more handbags, it will make you happy. Buy this design good, it will make you happy. And we're realizing there's a whole bunch of reasons for this, including all the science, which is new in the 21st century, that shows that experiences are better for us as well. So it's better for our well-being. People who are experienced are more pro-social, which is obviously good for society, and they live better, happier lives. So the, the opportunity of experientialism and the experience economy and better designed experiences, I think, is the opportunity of the 21st century. So it's, yeah, I think, I think it's the opportunity of the 21st century to make human life better do you think the general public and as a whole i mean we've just come through the covid pandemic for x number of years uh, but now in the ai pandemic as i like to call it but uh, <laughs> we'll ignore that for the moment just coming out of the covid pandemic do you think society's changed do you think people's view on the world's changed are they more open to the experience economy and spending time well or is that just me being an insider in the travel industry, hoping that that's the case? I wish I absolutely knew the answer to that. I wish I could just give you that wild positive look. The um, Having been a trend forecaster for, I think, 20 years now, um, doing like the future of travel, future of cities, future of gender equality, future of banking, et cetera. Um, one of the things I'll do at the beginning, towards the end of the beginning of every presentation that I've given, I'll say, look, there's all these things that are changing and here's the thing that isn't going to change. And if you follow evolutionary psychology and most people, whether they know they're talking about it or not, believe in evolutionary psychology is essentially we are and we will remain so for the next, certainly probably till I'm dead, um, flesh and blood humans. And what that means is that you can look at uh, self-determination theory as one good example, or, but evolution psychology is really helpful. What makes us happy? It's, it's Mars. Mastery, autonomy, relatedness, and secu safety, security, and some social status, right? These, these things make us happy and make us tick. Some of that stuff has changed. 
obviously, you know, online shopping is a really good example of what's changed through the pandemic and big moments take the First World War, the Second World War. You can see how female emancipation really happened. And the COVID, this pandemic that we had was a real moment. I think it certainly left people valuing their time more. Um, has it meant people bought a lot of shit during the pandemic, right? <laughs> I mean, a lot of shit because they were stuck home. They couldn't do anything. So I think there are also, there is pent up demand for doing things. And I think there is a, and I said this in Stuffocation as, as well. So, you know, I think the change from materialism as our value system to, to experientialism and realizing that experiences are better than material goods at making us happy is, um, I'm sure you've seen these, you know, th those sunsets that happen when you're somewhere in like Uganda near the equator versus a sunset that happens in northern Scotland. The one in Uganda is like, Poop, there you go. There goes the sun. The one you'll get in northern Scotland in uh, what, like mid-June, late June? is that sunset takes some time you know and i think that's what we're going to see and we are um get, and that's one of the reasons i started the world experience organization to to put some rocket boosters into this really because we need to create a movement that reminds people time and time and time again that experiences are best and things that will make us people happy because otherwise they're gonna be bombarded by bloody adverts selling shit they don't need and so it's our job of people working in experiences to you know to bang that drum and repeat that message Mussolini is always right Mussolini is always right Mussolini is always right experiences are better for you than stuff you know that thing about Mussolini is always right yeah. that whole propaganda thing from the 20s and 30s and I think um it's our responsibility and our opportunity to bang the drum for that I wish I could tell you that I just think that people have, have woken up to it they haven't all um but, but I think people are getting it. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously very subjective and it's only my little world, but I spend a lot of time wandering about mountains and rivers and remote places. And if you go back to the 80s, early 90s, I could be out for days if I was in Scotland or any other country and not see anybody else in the mountains or the rivers or canyons. If I go out now, I'm going to see a lot of people. And even on a Tuesday midweek, you will still meet people on whatever mountain or whatever river and on a weekend you will meet a lot of people so there's certainly a movement whether that scales up on a global scale i i don't know but certainly in the uk i've seen a lot more people going outside to experience nature uh, and a bit of exercise than i've than i've ever had and then covid came along and that was pre-covid as well mm. covid came along and sort of rocket boosted boosted that whether that transfers to global i don't i don't know let me throw oh, something in here just to agree with yeah. you because um, social media has been really important in this. And I think it's chapter eight of the book is called, um, I'm not trying to sell that book, by the way, don't worry about it. That was, uh, um, it's, um, but it's, uh, was called how Facebook, ch Facebook changed how we keep up, keep up with the Joneses. One of the yeah, interesting man. things here is that up until social media, people didn't know what you'd been doing at your week for your weekend. Therefore it had no, or had very little value in terms of status and status is very important to us but if you can take a picture of you in your bright orange cagoule in snowdonia or wherever okay or let's say you went to bought a paddle board during lockdown that's a much more interesting thing to post and here's my new pair of shoes yeah so i think there's i mean i could you know i i laid out the sort of 10 reasons in that snuffication 10 years ago about why we are moving and why this is happening and i i think long term that Hey, I wouldn't have bet the farm and be in the debt that I'm in to create the World Experience Organization if I didn't believe in it. I, I think the world is changing, yeah. So the world's changing, uh, certainly over our lifetimes. We've seen a massive increase in wealth, particularly in the developed Western world, but even in the developing world, wealth has increased. Life is better for most people on the planet. Uh, I know social media tries to make us believe it's not, but again, when you look at the data, life is better for most people on the planet. Certainly the developing world is creating more wealth than it's ever created before. So why are people not happier? And that's not my opinion they're not happy. Uh, if you look at all the mental health stats and the medical stuff, it, it's, people just don't seem to be as happy as I remember being when I was younger. But they're wealthy. Um, okay, wealth, so this, this, is a, this is a personal view rather than backed up by any data. I think unhappiness is a luxury good. 
I think yeah. depression, all these things are luxury goods because we're rich enough to have the time to do these things. Roll back 400 years um, and imagine saying, oh, I can't, you know, I can't get out of bed. And you're like, no, no, you go tend the sheep. Otherwise, you know, you go get the carrots in or whatever because we're not going to eat today. Life was simpler. I think there's a, I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons. I think social media is pretty pernicious for this. In the old day, you could you could get away from people and you didn't have to worry about people looking at you and, and what they were, you know, where they were judging you. Um, I think our connection to so many people through mass media and social media. And look, you go on Facebook, you got there's always one of your friends who's going to be in Colombia on holiday. I mean, <laughs> shit, it's so annoying, right? There's always somebody jetting off somewhere or just back from, and they all post those pictures. And so you're like, oh my God, my life is, you know, I live, as you can see, the mess behind me, right? You know, this is our kitchen. We've got uh, children who are nine and 11 and we post things up and there's always someone who's just had their kitchen done. So we live in a bit of a society where we're very aware of the taller poppies and, you know, um, at the same time, I think there's also issues with what capitalism has done for us. So the, you know, we're, we're focused on it. We saw some of this, I think, during the pandemic. We're so focused on efficiency and, you know, GDP, we kind of have forgotten what matters. We move to places for work. We select things. We play a game. Obviously, life is a game in all sorts of ways, but we keep score partly through the money we earn, which is the same as, you know, reading how well com companies are doing by, by GDP. So people will take a job based on what the salary is. And that's the first thing they look at, you know, and it's not something you talk about in sort of polite society generally, but you're kind of aware of where you sit. But actually, and we're seeing the movement shift, right? Think about the four day work week, for example, and the fact that people, once they've got enough stuff because of the wealth that we have, are choosing to maybe work less and choosing to take longer holidays. Um, I think that the the way that we focused on stuff has atomized society. And so there's a separation. I'll give you an example. One of the reasons why I experience the best of material goods is if you park your, I've got a really crappy, like 16, 17 year old Lexus that my dad gave me. Okay. And it's got bumps on all four corners, which means it's very relaxing to drive because it doesn't matter if I bump into anything. Okay. But if I park that car next to, um, somebody i live in west london so i could park it next to someone who's got a porsche mm -hmm. and someone who who's next to that who's got a little nissan micra say there's a very clear separation of who's got the better thing okay but when it comes to it so with you could do the same with handbags if you were to, you know if there are women women listening to this if you turn up to work and someone there's got a chloe handbag you've got the one from top shop and someone else has got a sort of knockoff handbag from the market you've got a separation that doesn't bring you closer but if you go camping Okay. And let's say somebody's glamping. Okay. The glamping people are a bit different to the people that go camping. And then you've got the people that go off um, with a backpack and all go lightweight camping, really serious, or even the kind of wild campers, you know, who sleep under a tarp. Um, there's a distinction between those, but they're all campers. The other guys aren't, you know, if you're into fashion, there's a separation between the high, the medium and the low. And if you're a car driver, if I get out of my Lexus, actually, I am one of those idiots who sees someone in the same car and goes, hey, how are you doing? And they look at me like I'm mad. But um, if you're camping and you see someone who's on a different level of camping to you, they're still campers. Experiences bring us closer together and material goods separate us. And if you look at the neuroscience, and we had a fantastic talk from a couple of um, neuroscientists, this new wave of something called neuroaesthetics um, the other day. Their take on well-being, and I'm hearing this in more places because everyone hates the word well-being because eh, it's just a horrible, boring word. Who wants well-being? I don't. I want to be joyous. I want to be happy. I want to be sad. I want to be. I want to feel something. Their, their take is that really the key word is connection, and it's connections of three things: connection to self, connection to others, and connection to nature. And the research is really clear on this. If you've got a really strong connection to who you are and what you are, and that can be flexible and changing and all that. But if you've got that sense and if you've got a connection to others and that obviously, you know, um, friends, family, but also the postman and, and the people of this local shop or the local pub that you go to and then connection to nature. Um, you know, whether you just pass that tree and just like whatever, or maybe you just pat the tree as you go past. Maybe you have an appreciation of flowers, an appreciation of 
um, you know, the flies that annoy the crap out of you sometime and the mosquitoes, but actually you realize that's food for the birds, etc. If you come back to that idea of connection, then you're, you're going to be happier. And I think that as this information flows through to people, more people get it. And it's our job to make people get it. Yeah. Uh, again, I keep using COVID here, but you all have seen all the studies with the data of employees and organizations who are unhappy. And it's it's big numbers. It's you know, it's not single digits. It's normally 60%, 75%, 69%. It's high numbers of employees are there for one thing only, the wage packet at the end of the, mm. the day. Then we've been through the COVID thing where lots and lots of people got the chance to work at home. and suddenly discovered that life was a bit more than going to the office every day. And so we've had a, I believe, a society-level change just by more people working at home, uh, which subconsciously or consciously is making people realise that the job isn't everything it, it it was made out to be, that work. From, from an employer's point of view, from company's point of view, what are they going to have to do when the one... The staff are not coming back to the office when they want them. We've seen that happening. The next phase could be the staff are just bailing out en masse because, as the data tells us, 60 percent 70% are just not happy with their jobs. They're there for the salary and the salary only. That's tragic, eh? Um, I mean, it's the company's first up. I mean, there's some real issues for cities. By 2030, you're looking at 25 to 30% of real estate in um, central business districts in places like New York and London is not going to be used. So there's major issues for the businesses in those cities and what those cities are going to do from a, you know, a tax point of view and empty real estate point of view. Um, it's a real opportunity for, um, for travel, I think. And I think it's a real opportunity for conferences, especially as people work from home remotely, asynchronously, my team. I see very rarely come into the office, which is also great, right? But it also brings challenges. Um, one of the things, and I still never understand why people work for companies that just want to make money. I find that a really empty, boring proposition. Of course, money is handy, right? There's nothing wrong. And profit is great because you can do things with that. You can take your family on great holidays. You can live an enjoyable life. You don't have to worry about the mortgage due in... 11 days time, you know, <laughs> you know, for me, um, it's, you know, yeah, that, I think it was, a, I think work from home has been a really exciting movement, you know, the three, two, two and the, and the different structure of people's working lives is just really positive. Um, but at the same time, you need that sense of camaraderie and community. You think about the magic if you ever played rugby or football or mm -hmm. some kind of team sport or even if you go hiking with a bunch of people, you know, that, that thing where you, we're all in it together is so important to us, that connection to other people. One of the problems with the work from home movement, and I say this as someone who's been freelance for many years, and I've worked for myself for the past 10 years now, um, it was 10 years this February, um, just working in your kitchen can be really lonely and not good at all, which is why we're also seeing this explosion of um, co-working places. Um, it's one of the problems with the, the downfall of the pub, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I know people obviously drink less nowadays, but I'm sort of amazed that the pubs haven't reinvented themselves. Um, I mean, we could really get into this if you, if you want to go there about the housing issues. I really I'm confused by houses aren't just getting much smaller and making better co-working, co-living kind of spaces for people. Strikes is much more important. There's a potential for travel companies here, I think, in terms of how to reinvigorate people through going other places. That's that opportunity to kind of feel something in and work out what your life is is, is means and why you yeah, want to do it. I've been I've been discussed this several times with a membership that pre-COVID, when I was a tour operator, I'm no longer a tour operator, but when I, I used to have a reasonable scaled corporate business where we dealt with a lot of corporates. And what we delivered was adventure for them. And it was a nice day out or a nice weekend out. It was nice to have. It wasn't essential to their life. It wasn't essential to the business. It was normally reward-based, so they had a good quarter or the managers or the leaders wanted to reward the staff. So it was all nice to have. What I've seen coming out with all this work from home and remote teams 
it's changed from nice to have to must have. They need to get people together and on a reasonably regular period of time. And for some, it's once a month, some it's once a quarter. But that connection, that working as a team together rather than just digital is a must have now. So from a travel perspective, your corporate events previously were nice to have, whereas hosting and looking after corporate events now are a must have from the customer's perspective, from the corporate. The difference from working with some companies who have been hosting them is the companies are there to work, whereas previously they were there to enjoy themselves, a bit of reward, kind of a bit of team building, but it was all a bit of a laugh. Whereas today they're there actually working and it's really important time. It could be the most important week that quarter. Therefore, you're hosting a super important time for that company. So the experience part of it, what you're delivering on above the work, is only a small part of their break. Uh, if they've gone to Portugal for a week and you're looking after them in Portugal for a week, it's maybe the evenings that you're putting in some extra experiences for them, but during the day they are working because that is their time together. And that's some of the difference from a travel perspective. It's a huge opportunity because we're talking millions and millions of people who are now having to travel to get together every every now and then. And who better to design these retreats and these breaks than the, the travel industry have all the contacts and all the logistics on the bottom. That's a brilliant point. I mean, I 100% agree with you. I gave a talk at site that Society for Incentive Travel Excellence, I think it is, uh, talking about this as the opportunity. Interesting, some of the points that you make. I mean, the opportunity really is in those companies understanding the importance of this. If you look at, um, there's a guy called Andrew Oswald at the um, the business school in Warwick. Um, who's done this research that shows that happier employees are, I think it's 13% more productive. So there's a real reason for companies to, to care about this. Anyway, I'm shocked that the government in our country doesn't get a hold of this as well, because there's, you know, we have real productivity issues, not so much in the States, but productivity is, especially in a world of AI and ML, what do, how do humans show their value, right? How do you, yep. we need to move up the value chain. We need to be more creative, more curious, more productive. And the things that make people more curious, more creative, more productive, more productive is well-being. More curious and more creative is about well-designed experiences. There's type. There's some experiences that can make people less um, curious and creative and some that make them more so. And a lot of those involve, you know, challenging stuff, people that bring in a bit of cognitive dissonance, make it, uh, yeah, something that increases people's resilience. Um, and the opportunity, I think, here is to, there's this lovely term called the functional alibi. And this is from some researchers at Harvard and the University of Columbia. And a lot of people, when they take a break, especially sort of, you know, really busy, hardworking people, they think they're just going for fun. But actually, it makes them more creative, more curious, etc. And it's really good for them. And this is from, from an individual's point of view, but also it could be from a company's point of view. If you can rework that as the functional alibi and realize that taking, uh, you know, taking a long walk, working five, six hours a day and then calling it time and taking some time to do deep play rather than deep work. I'm borrowing this from a guy called Alex Sujun Kim Pang, who wrote the brilliant book Shorter, uh, which is a four day work week kind of book. Um, is if you can use the functional alibi and realize that by doing that, you'll be better at your productive skills, you're more likely to do it more often. So yeah. if you can bring that cell into companies, if you can bring that cell into people and make them realize, I do, I do it to myself because I work bloody hard. If I remind myself that going to the gym, going for a, a cycle uh, or sitting down and failing to play the guitar, which I do fairly irregularly, but I'm trying to get better at failing to play the guitar, I, that actually makes me better at my work. And so once people understand that and they're more likely to come to that, um, it's not time off. It's just time away from that core activity that will make you better at your core activity. Yeah, I think most people understand the 80, 20, 20% 20 of the effort again gets 80% of the results. But we're moving into a world, and I don't want to go on about AI, but we are moving in. We're not moving in. We are in. We are definitely in it now. We're, I'm saying to operators, 90, 10 you need to look at your life, your world, and imagine a world where 90% of what you do today, you're not going to do going forward. But the 10% that you are going to continue to do going forward is the high value, really impactful stuff that will make you more value 
not less value. The 90% will be taken care of by the machines. The 10% is going to be the real exceptional value. But that just doesn't happen. You have to discover what that real exceptional value is you you deliver as a human and let the machines slowly take over the rest of the 90% that you probably don't enjoy doing a lot of it anyway. (laughs) Did you know Torpreneur also has a Facebook community of over 7,000 tour operators? If you are not a member, then search for Torpreneur on Facebook and join a thriving community of tour operators and other travel professionals, all of whom learn from each other as well as from Chris, Mitch, Pete, and many other industry experts. By becoming a member, you will be notified first of any events, meetups, and exclusive content. Join the Torpreneur community today. Facebook.com slash group slash Torpreneur. Yeah, um, I've fallen in love with uh, ChatGPT recently and Copy.ai for, for writing stuff. It's it, The human will do the curation because we understand the human who's buying or reading or watching or whatever they're doing. But using these tools to... You know, we could do it now live in the call. We could go into ChatGPT and say, design me a trip in the Dominican Republic or just design a trip that includes these kind of key moments and it'll and churn the thing out. And then, and look, to come back to this. This is, um, there was a brilliant, there's a book called um, The Signal and the Noise by a guy called Nate Silver, who runs something called the 538 blog, which is bought by the New York Times, but came back again. He wrote this, this brilliant book. And one of the chapters, and it's I think it's available for free on the New York Times, it used to be, was a column he wrote called The Weatherman is Not a Moron. And it's a fantastic piece that basically shows how um, when humans do weather forecasting, we're not that good. We're okay, but we're on a lot of the time. If you feed all the meteorolo- meteorologic- meteorological, is that how you say that word? If you put all that met data into a machine, it will spin out forecasts. They're in some ways way better than the human, but the machine doesn't have that, I guess, common sense. Often the machine can go completely wrong. You put the human together with the machine, they're awesome. And this is why I've, sometimes I've done this for years, talk about cobots cobots rather than robots and they've seen in car manufacturing places um maybe it's bmw i think in in germany but also working in sort of legal legal uh, companies that when you put the machine together with a human wow i mean this this is going back to 1750 1760 and and the, the you know the stuff that was happening in the the mills you know humans were suddenly able to produce um uh clothing at sort of four times the rate they previously had that's seriously fast and that's what's happening right at the moment but the machines on their own are idiots obviously humans are really slow but you put the two together because the thing is the machine hasn't um uh, hasn't walked uh the what's it called the camino real no what's the thing in santiago in uh spain uh, the yeah, the Camino. It's a Camino. Yeah. It's a right, long okay. walk for religious. Yeah. Uh, there's lots and, of them now. There's now not just one Camino. There's lots okay. of Caminos. Right. You know, the, the machine hasn't done that. And I've been to, um, I remember I wrote a piece for CNN Traveller years ago about Uganda and going, I went to the south, I went to the north to a place called Kadepo. And if I was putting together an itinerary for somebody in um, in Uganda, for example, because it's amazing out there and no one else really seems to go, um, and it's a very surreal culture in all sorts of ways, uh, from from my point of view. Um, the machine hasn't been there, so it doesn't have that insight that I have and that understanding. Especially if you're designing something for, uh, you know, a bespoke piece for a group of twenty people or you know, a particular target audience. Um, but the machine could really help. I could feed into it what I know and what it knows, and it'll come out with something amazing together. You know, so. Leading on from that, so design and experiences. Now, obviously, tour operators or audience here, they design experiences on a regular basis. They may run them for several years and design a new one. They're always thinking about and doing design and experiences. We have a very fragmented audience. Some of them will be in history, culture, some of them food tours, adventure, all over the place. But they're designing experiences all the time. That is their core function, to deliver a great experience to make the customer happy. Uh, make the customer smile, make the customer enjoy. But actual structure to design an experience rather than doing it from your 
historical own experience, your own knowledge, because you happen to be a history buff or you happen to be a food guru? And is there a design process that should be thought through for designing experiences? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah absolutely, 100%. Um, I want to be careful because I don't want to be one of those people that tries to sell their organization and why somebody should join it, but they should talk to you because you know what you're talking about. Um, but what we do at the WXO is we bring together brilliant people who design um, experiences and we pick out how they do it. But actually, and I don't know if you know this, I've just designed something for um, the national, what are they called, New Scientist Discovery Tours. And I'm leading a trip in Morocco and it's based on uh, a structure in a book I wrote called Time and How to Spend It, um, which the Financial Times named a book of the year in 2019, just before um, the COVID pandemic. And um, that has a structure stories, S-T-O-R-I-E-S, of the, of the checklist that you should use or a checklist that you can use to design experiences. Maybe I should throw in here, and I'm not trying to sell the book or the WXO because there are also other brilliant people with any any kind of structure but when i'm a real believer in checklists and there's a wonderful book called the checklist manifesto by a guy called atul gawande uh, a physician in the states and it shows that in a summary it says that when things go from being simple to complicated humans need a checklist because we forget stuff and the, the the great example of this really is both the checklist that's used in um in cockpits for pilots because there, I think it was 30% of planes that the American uh, Air Force was flying in the 30s were crashing. And one of the reasons why is the planes were, you know, if you've ever uh, flown a small plane, you'll know that they're really simple. Like right? pull back, push forward, turn left, turn right. And that's the, but you get into a proper commercial or, uh, you know, war plane, they've got all those instruments. There's a lot of stuff. So when something goes becomes complicated, we need a checklist. But also in operating theatres, there is a 19-point checklist that's used around the world. Uh, rich countries, poor countries, uh, rich hospitals, poor hospitals. And what happens, they found it. When they use this checklist, it reduces deaths and complications from surgery by 33%. And the thing is about, and one of the questions, by the way, is can everyone just say what their name is and what they do here? And then... One of them is, has the um, have we checked where the surgical place is? So is it left leg or right leg? Because people make mistakes. Have you washed your hands? I think it's one of them too. And if you think about designing a, a, an itinerary, you'll know that from a certain point, if you go, okay, you know, a weekend in um, Vienna, there are certain places to go and you could dry, you know, draw that up. Or if you're going to Peru and you're going to Puerto Maldonado or whatever, wherever you're going, there is certain kind of obvious things to do, but also you're dealing with people and you've got all these potential things that you could do. And so I think a checklist is a really good idea. And I mean, I could really, this is really is my um, university challenge 101 subject I go on forever. Um, the simple way to think about it, I would say, is that there's a, a beginning, a middle and an end and each of those are very different because you think about those people you receive on that first day and you think about how they're different to the people at the end. And there's a term I use, the B rules, which is stolen from the peak end rules. But it turns out and there was research by a Kiwi uh, travel researcher, actually, that, that's in this book that shows that beginnings, extremes and endings are the moments that matter the most because they're the ones that people remember. So how you design that final day, and I'm not saying you should pack it in because the denouement is very important as well. If you look at the structure of the hero's journey or the structure of so many different sort of, you know, approaches to storytelling. And I think approaches to storytelling are really useful because, of course, an experience is story that you live, that you live through. Um, we need to invite people to cross the threshold like any hero. So how do we bring them to do that? And then they need to go on that um you know that go into the adventure world and go through those processes and they need hard stuff now when i've worked with travel companies i've worked with companies like black tomato and kayak and kuoni um and I'm trying to think anyway some others um when you try and say to um a travel company they need to have really hard stuff in the experience, and I've talked about the man in hull, which is a way of looking at the hero's journey. I'm like, you know, it needs to be difficult. You can flip that and turn it into a mountain to climb. And it doesn't have to be a literal mountain, of course, but in order to 
in order to really get the joy from something, you've got to go through it a bit. If you think about the best things in life, you know, it's when it's when your back's against the wall. It's it's the time that you when something happens. So the problem with the sort of Maldives trip, which is just this wonderful kind of champagne on the beach kind of thing, as opposed to sort of warm beer on, you know, a camping trip. You go to Wales and the and the, and the, the tent falls over. One of those gives you a story. I'm really wandering here because I could have should have structured this better. But, you know, when people come from home from a, a vacation of some sort is and someone turns to them and say, how was your how was it? How was your trip? How was your holiday? And they go, oh, I was, was really good. We had, we had a, we stayed in a really nice villa. Everything was laid on for us. And, you know, it was a great chef. And, oh, you know, it was lovely sunsets. Why is so boring? <laughs> I mean, that's just awful, right? What? Imagine though, you come back and you and say, "What happened?" You're like, "Oh, the truck broke down." That's a story. And if you look at the research, and I'm borrowing from a guy called Tom Gilovich here, who's one of the pioneers of understanding why experiences are better than things, is that we want to hear people tell stories about where you know where someone's got a real story, not just a boring story. And so if you come home from a holiday with a story of where something went wrong, because the hero's journey and this sort of structure is the kind of story we want to hear. It's the evolved shape of story. More people are going to listen to you. More people are going to be interested in what you have to say. So you'll have more friends. You'll get laid more. You'll be more successful at work. And look, I'll give you the example. You think about the great hero leaders of not just our time, but every time. They say the same story. This is Martin Luther King. This is, God, awful man, Adolf Hitler. This is good, bad, ugly leaders say something very simple. They say, this is hard. We are in it, but you come with me and I will take you to the promised land. And the structure of that story goes very simply. We are people that we care about. It's shitty hard right now but we will make it to something better. And if you give people a story where they get home and they say, you know what, it was really tough. People want to hear that story and they get to enjoy telling that story. It connects them to other people. It will make them happier and more successful, better relationships, more resilience. And I'm just, I'm, it probably sounds like I'm waffling and wandering, but this is all based on stuff I've stolen from people cleverer than me, psychologists, neuroscientists, etc. And so coming back to your original question, should there be a structure? Absolutely, there should be a structure. You need to design the onboarding. You need to design that cross in the threshold. You need to give them something challenging. And then they need to come through to the other side. And then they have a story to tell people, tell themselves about who they are and tell people when they get home. That will make yeah. them happier and make more people come and buy a holiday from you too, right? Yeah. Yeah, everybody wins. If I refer back to my my own journey through uh, taking thousands of people out on adventure, time played a big part because initially I was taking people on day adventure, weekend adventure, short trips, three days, four days, maybe a week, and we were having an impact on people and they were enjoying themselves, uh, and they were doing some risky stuff and they were a bit scared and people were happy, but we weren't really changing their lives. They would go away and talk about it and it was a great thing, but give them a year or two and it's just a distant memory. So it wasn't transformational. So coming back to the experience economy, getting to transformational uh, experiences, which we speak to our community about transformational experiences all the time from a pure business focus, i.e. you can make more profit if you deliver transformational experiences. So, before you guys were around and stuff, I was making this stuff as I went on, making it up as I went along. So it's like, how do I design a transformational experience? So yeah, military background. So I came with checklists. Everything was checklists, otherwise people died. So checklist, checklist, checklist. So for me, it was had to be active, had to be outside. That was a given. I had that was just because I, if I was going to be doing it, I wanted to be outside. It had to have a goal. So what's the what are we doing this for to give people an objective? If you're going to spend six weeks with me or 10 weeks with me or whatever, wherever in the world, it has to have a bloody goal. Otherwise it's, it's pointless. It has to have a fair amount of risk because that's again, that's just, I know how humans react to risk and too much risk. It can tip them over the edge, too little risk to get bored. But if you can structure in the right number of risk, people pay attention and get a kickback. 
uh, has to be different, unpredictable shit happens. If it's all itineraried out, this is what's going to happen every day, and that happens every day. That's not transformational. That's like reading a book and just being outside. So it had to be unpredictable, uh, and it had to be reasonably diff- not reasonably difficult. It had to be difficult and complex enough that people are just not going to go and do it themselves, where they, they feel they need the security of and other people who have done it before, or a group, or someone who's experienced in that. Uh, and I was all. This is more relevant for today's world than than my world, because of the ongoings of mobile and social media. If I'm designing now, I now look for can we get distractions of constantly online removed from the experience. Whereas in 20, 30 years ago, that wasn't really as you still had distractions, but you didn't have distractions of anything like you get now with. So I'm a big fan of taking people where they don't get a signal intentionally. And you haven't got a signal and you see them go through a, a detox over the first week, panicking that they can't be on talking nonsense to their friends. Uh, so there is, if you want to deliver transformational, there, there is tick boxes. I don't believe there's a standard tick box that fits every operator because it, it's different for whatever experience you're uh, going to create. But they were some of the, the tick boxes that I look for when I'm creating something that was... Because the objective was to change people's lives. If they got to the end of it and their life had not changed, well, then I hadn't done my job. And it wasn't transformational. It was just an experience. You've set off so many ideas in my head as you were speaking there. So it's just, it was amazing hearing you describe that because you did that intuitively, right? That's what you were doing. Yeah. Yeah. And so have you read my book or no, this time? Nope. Okay. <laughs> no. okay. Honestly, this is comedy. You are literally using the same words so that you can design flow. And the uh, chapter uh, I for, for uh, intensity, so stories, S-T-O-R-I-E-S, right? So O is outside and offline, by the way. So the first S is story, the important story. T is transformation. O is outside and offline. R is relationships, i.e. other people. Um, the I is intensity, which is about flow. The E is extraordinary, which is ordinary. is also good as well, but so is extraordinary. And the final S is status and significance. But the in chapter I about intensity, there is a, a checklist for designing flow. And it's Dark Funk, okay? D-A-R-G-F-U-N-C, because I like the band Daft Punk. D is delete distractions. A is be active, um, like when you're you know dancing or you're walking uh, or yeah, you're yeah. climbing something. But exactly what you're saying about this outside thing. R is risk. G is goals. S, uh, uh, F. F is feedback, whether you're getting towards the goals or not. And UNC yeah. is unusual, new, and complex. And you all, I think you said every single one of those words. I think I missed, I missed the feedback, but that is yeah, where, yeah. We, where we used to insert feedback was on a constant, because a lot of these expeditions we did involved a lot of walking or trekking for yeah. long distances or cycling for long distances. So the feedback route was always ongoing during the experience because you're always checking in with guests getting feedback, are you stressed, are you, are you damaged because they were quite physical? And so the, the feedback thing, a lot of people look for feedback at the end, whereas I'm con- I'm interested, not so much right at the beginning because you're kick-starting things and getting it off, but as people settle into routine and the group gels together, that's when I'm interested in feedback, when it's live, when it's real, yeah, yeah. when yeah, things yeah. are happening. That's the point you get the best feedback not necessarily at the end because humans' brains are weird and the feedback you get at the end are a bit, yeah. can be a bit weird. You need feedback as you go. And I also want to jump in with, um, actually, interesting what you're saying about, you know, that, that challenge. So we've got a woman called Martha Newsom giving a talk who is a cognitive, anth- cognitive anthropologist and she studied, um, she started by studying uh, football crowds, soccer crowds, but she was a real raver. So she studied why people come together and they have transformational experiences at raves and rave culture is a really interesting subculture because it's been around now for like 30 years. And most cultures, you, you think about rock and roll. Rock and roll didn't last very long. Rave culture is insane. It's been going since the late 80s in the UK. And so she studied this partly as, I think, an excuse to go partying. Um, but she looks at the, 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 she's, the, the paper she's published is called I Get High With A Little Help From My Friends. And it's about the four Ds that, that are really important for this kind of transformational experiences but i was talking to her a couple of weeks ago she says there's a fifth d and they fit don't fit with some of this stuff but i've been looking at this there's a guy called brian hill who's an experienced design professor 
at the Marriott School of Business, who who takes people um, uh, canyoneering, they call it in Utah, and, and on sort of outward bound stuff. I, I have to admit to you that I cried when I went canyoneering with him. I was so scared. Oh my God, I just couldn't. I did it, I did it. But That's I was a good thing, sad. he's getting an emotional reaction, so he's oh, designed it well. It, it was brilliant. I sat at the top of this, I had to shuffle out of this, only 200 foot or so, but I'd forgotten that someone else was at the bottom holding the rope. So I thought it was just me. And it was me between me and, and death. And I was just, I was going through a, a fair few other things at the time as well. But it just, anyway, I was like, Brian, I think I'm going to cry as he sat there. You know, <laughs> he's like, James, in his sort of uncleish uh, American voice, James, don't worry, that's fine. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> just, anyway, but the idea that, so hold on. Um, the idea that had come to me as you were saying this is I think one of the challenges with transformation, I mean, first of all, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And that is true of any, just experience design, actually. You do what you like to make it, but experience is both you and that person. You can do what you can do for the, you know, the structured experience. You can do what you, you can, but it's still the person. It's very, you know, from an economic point of view, it's very different selling stuff. Here's the stuff. Do you like it? It's up to you. But with experience, you've got it's that person it is very important part of it. And that's what makes it, you know, it's co-created every experience. But with transformation, it's even more extreme. But the other thing about transformation, because you can think about with a tiny tea and a massive tea. Road to Damascus, uh, you know, ayahuasca trip. You come back, you're like, no, I'm never working for the man again. I am done with that corporate job. I'm going to do this thing instead or, you know, and that does happen. And I, I don't know if you know, I work with the Transformational Travel Council. You probably know those guys, yeah. um, you know, wonderful what, what they're doing. Um, um, and um, there's also the little T where, you know, you, you, you change because you've seen something for the first time. You know, the first time we drove the Amalfi Coast and we were late for a plane. And so that was an insane, very memorable experience of, of actually overtaking people, uh, which was just horrific and very scary. And my wife is still cross with me uh, about 10 years later, but there you go. Um, but actually, and I want to throw this, this phrase came to me, is repeat transformation. And this is also, I think this could be really strong for, for people in the travel industry, is that people often want to like think that you're going to have an experience and you'll be transformed. But the truth is you'll come back to your old life to your old friends, to your old problems of paying the mortgage and the rent and your um, neighbours that you like and the ones that you don't like. And, the you know, wherever you go, there you are, the shit that's in your head. And actually, maybe we think about transformation in the wrong way. And we think about transformation a bit like the way that people think about Western medicine. We think transformation is take a pill, I'll be better. Have an operation, it will be gone as opposed to that much more kind of Eastern way that is, it's, you know, it's, it, it's the way that yoga is approached. If you study yoga in Rishikesh, and I've studied yoga in Rishikesh, the people that do it there properly are there for 25 years. But what Westerners want to do is yeah. they want to go to Rishikesh for three days, do a bit of Ashtanga on the roof with some Californian, do a bit of Hatha yoga or whatever, and, you know, sit and... I'm transformed. I want to be, I, I, I want, I want to, you know, escape from samsara and this is where I want to be. And um, I think that maybe we need to talk about repeat transformation because what that does is of course it brings people back again, but it accepts the fact that we, that we, we, um, we get off the band, we fall off the bandwagon of being the better other person that we are. I take a well-being weekend um, I try to do it at least three, four times a year. And one of those is with an old friend of mine who is a complete idiot. And we go away for sort of 36, 48 hours to escape our wives and children or his girlfriend in his case. And we go wild camping and we might take some psychedelics. We definitely end up doing something that is ridiculous and embarrassing and, you know, and, and funny. And then we come back and then I'm much more able to be a, I hope, a good husband and a good father and, and good with my work and um and actually repeat transformation is really about support and that's that functional alibi because i've done all this research because i'm so geeky and i want to read all this you know the science papers around there um 
I then deliberately put it into my life and I caught myself. I was getting to real burnout. I'll stop talking in a minute, but just to say September, October, November, I mean, from June onwards last year was, to be frank, really tough. You know, you know what it's like building something. There are, there are tough times. And um, I knew it was there and I just said to my, I just need to get away. And I ended up going to Snowdonia for a, let's just leave it as a, as a well-being weekend, but a pretty wild well-being weekend. And I've come, I, I suddenly saw the wood for the trees again. I came back and made better decisions, et cetera. So repeat transformation should be the cell that we make, not transformation. Yeah, and that, that kind of ties in, doesn't kind of, the biggest challenge in the travel industry is a regular purchase. Like people purchase one, and because the industry is so vast, they, they purchase more travel, but they may not purchase with the travel organization that they yeah. So a regular purchase is the biggest challenge for tour operators. May not realize it, but it is a regular purchase is a killer of your business. So if you come back to tr tour design and designing tours, you should be designing on a ladder effect. Right, this one leads to this one leads to this one. So when I was running rafting trips, we would really try to get every customer on the intro rafting trip. They all wanted to do the the scary grade five rafting trip, but we're wanting them to do the intro rafting trip because we have a middle and we have a, a top end rafting trip. So you've got three and then you can get a bigger relationship with the customer. If you're looking for transformation of the customer, the more touch points, the more times you've got it. So this all comes back to when you're designing tours and experiences, it's not just a transformational experience once off. Can you design a repeat process where the guest wants to be in touch with your organization over a protracted period of time? accepting that life and society and marriage and kids and all of that's going to in interrupt stuff like that. But well-designed experiences can create a loop of people staying in touch with you as an organisation. So, James, we've been on for an hour. Could I just ask you to just close up on experience design and why it is the most important thing in the world and what your operator should be paying attention to? It's the most, just as exactly as you've just been saying, actually, you fired off ideas in me here thinking about why would you sell a holiday when you sell a series? And the status thing, if you think about the final S of that story structure is really important for, for, for humans, right? I mean, you think about the success of Scientology as a look at the structure of Scientology where you rise up through those ranks, which is why it's been so successful. I mean, otherwise, how, how do you make sense of somebody making up something just out of that, right? No, crazy. But there you go. So why would you sell one? Uh, vacation when you sell a series I, I really like what you're talking about there about in terms of you bring people at one level you take them through but I've, I've always actually always for the past 10 years um having worked in travel before that much more as a travel journalist and um um uh, yeah when I work for travel companies um is that travel companies say they care about you but then what they try and do is sell you one trip yeah. now that isn't caring about you. What about the other week and the following weeks and, and, the, and, the, and the other 51 weeks or 50 weeks or whatever? But if you if you maybe sell a process of kind of like, come with us and we will lead you to the promised land and you can give them those, if you give them those stories, I mean, let's come back to that actually. Because you think about the best, the best trips and not necessarily the ones where the sun shines. They're the ones where you come back with that story. And if you know that when you go on you know, vacation with this particular tour operator, you come back feeling taller because you've gone through flow. You've, you come back a, a richer sense of who you are and why life is worth living. And you've got stories to tell you all your friends. And when they say, how was your trip? And you're like, oh my God, we did this, we did this, we did this. And that comes back to, to experience design. I'm going to do a plug for the WXO. Is that ugly to do that? But no, no. I mean, we got super smart people and the thing is to steal from other sectors to steal from the best movies that you've seen to steal from the structure of um how stories are created steal from um great restaurant design great museum design uh, meow wolf's work for example or secret cinema or moment factory steal from these other people and think about how they design the before the during the after the beginning the middle and the end how they make sure that there's something in there that just throws you out and is super memorable there's a, an example, I think, um, it's in one of Joe's books about a hotel that's pretty average, but they've got a, 
um a phone i think by the pool with a you know sort of bat phone there's a there's a restaurant in london which is really average in every way apart from there's a button on the tables that says press for champagne so what can you bring in that is going to give people the opportunity to say to, to not be able to help themselves when someone says oh you know how was your three days trip or how was your two weeks or whatever they go oh my god we did this thing and i've got to tell you about it you know when you have that that fire to tell somebody and even if you don't want to tell it's about you know telling it to yourself and to be maybe naked about it because you know i think you, you picked up on this the truth is getting a new customer it depends on what you read it costs is it is it cost five to 25 times more than keeping an old customer keeping yep. an old customer is magic because they know you yep. so you so you've got a, a direct link to them you've got their email address and they've had an experience with you that's much cheaper so the the idea of bringing somebody in for one and then done is insane it's a terrible it way to run your business and we've got to bear in mind that loyalty is a very difficult thing and of course people always go shop elsewhere you know the idea of the monogamous uh travel company relationship where they only travel you does doesn't really make sense you don't need to worry about that also not maybe not to let go if they don't travel with you for a year so maybe to keep in touch with them and kind of say this is what we're doing but to sell one trip and not deliberately put that as part of a part of a package and a family. And I'm going to give you one example of this, which I really like. Actually, there's a experience that's just opened in, in August last year called Phantom Peak in London. And one of the challenges for lots of these location based experiences is that people come once and then they're done. They have seasonality. So they operate for, uh, I don't know, uh, two, three months. And then they close for a short time and they reopen with a new story. Yep. Seasonality is just one trick that you can do. You think about the franchise model for Hollywood. They've worked out. I mean, you can, you know, clever people do this really well. They've worked out. And if you look at the numbers, it's, it's, it's scary. If you have to sell a new movie, you have to spend billions on getting people to know that story. But if they already know that story, um, Toy Story works, They'll go see Toy Story 2, 3, 4, et cetera. So you can change your um, profit structure and the sustainability of your business by those repeat customers. So therefore, the design of that first trip should never be seen as, oh, come on, vacation with us. Let's hope we sell you another one. It should be seen as part of the package, part of the franchise, part of the repeat cycle. Um, we had a great um, talk by a guy called Andrea Mocha at Secret Cinema of something he did at um, uh, in Los Angeles. And they had a really surprising repeat visit. And so he, he shared how he did that. But at the Phantom Peak that I mentioned, 30 uh, percent of their customers are repeats and they've only been open since August. So that's you know, you can do it. The key is to see how other people are doing it and bring that into your thinking. So experience design is essential in travel because life is not going to be easy in the next years and so if you do it well you're going to be more sustainable and more likely to be here in three years time and enjoying your work and it's important because better designed experiences will make people happier feel more alive more resilient have better relationships and i think it's our opportunity to transform quality of life so tour operators thanks very much james for fascinating discussion on why experience design is at the very core of what our community of tour operators do. Thanks very much. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for the great questions. Maybe we really think.